Let's pray. My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Now, many of you know that I am a tenor with the Opera Company of Philadelphia. I've been there with them for 28 seasons, and I'd like to sing for you a song I learned at summer camp. Announcements, announcements, announcements. Doc has another one, another one, another one. Doc has another one, he has them all the time. Announcements, announcements, announcements. And when you're up, you're up. And when you're down, you're down. And when you're only halfway up, you're neither up or down. Announcements, announcements, announcements. We sang that, at our, did anybody else ever sing that again? You never heard that? Right? And then we were all trained to cheer for whomever it was making announcements. Woo! We would cheer. Now, well, well, thank you. There are no announcements. They've already been made. But why did we have to do that? Because nobody likes announcements. Right? Over the, the, the uh, loudspeaker at the high school, you know, please rise for the Pledge Allegiance. And the kids don't jump up like they did in second grade. We have a second grade class that screams the Pledge of Allegiance. You can hear them through the entire building. They're excited. But there comes something right around the age of 13, 14 when you you get up like this. You've seen this. Sometimes they don't even say it. And after that comes the announcements. One of my favorite announcements was this one. If you were outside and did not hear the bell, you should be in homeroom. Think about that. That was an announcement. I'll never forget it. If you're outside and you didn't hear the bell, you should be in homeroom. Well, if you didn't hear the bell, you're probably not hearing the announcement and you're still outside. We don't like announcements. One more for you. I love this one. One of my personal favorites. Hats, scarves, and head coverings are not allowed in the building. Consequences will be exacted on those who wear hats and scarves in the building. The National Honor Society is selling hats and scarves. Please stop by their table at the cafeteria at lunch. We don't like announcements because sometimes they just don't make sense. So in Isaiah 61, as Danny pointed out, Isaiah tells us about the coming Messiah. Isaiah is not being quoted as saying, this is me. He's saying it on behalf of the Messiah who is to come. And look what he says. I love this. He says, I have come to give good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, set the oppressed free, and... I'm going to establish the year of our Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, the year in Hebrew law when everything was reset. If you sold your family's plot of land, you got it back. If you owed a debt, it was washed away. It was, it was a precursor. It was an image of what God was going to do for us. And Jesus chooses this passage to read. Now, it's very interesting in Luke 4. Jesus is traveling the countryside, visiting synagogues. And I don't know if you know this, but synagogues 
actually were developed during the Babylonian exile. They took all of the Jews to Babylon, but they didn't take the temple with them. The temple was still in Jerusalem. In fact, it had been destroyed. So they had no way to worship or sacrifice. So they built synagogues, what we would probably call a church, and the Jews would go to study and to pray and to maintain their Jewish identity. In the time of Jesus in Jerusalem, there were over 400 synagogues besides the temple. It was a very important part of Jewish life. Now, when I was a kid and you moved, you might remember this. If you were Methodist, the first thing you did was look for the Methodist church in town. If you were Baptist, you, looked, you had an identity that went with the building in which you worshiped on Sunday morning. Same idea. And Luke tells us that Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue and that the people are grabbing onto his words. And they're, they're talking about the exciting message that he has. And then Jesus gets to go to his home church. And these are the people that remember, they're, they're like, oh, he went to high school with my kid at Nazareth High and played on the soccer team and, you know, was a catcher on the baseball team. And they, they remember Jesus from this all the way up. And when he preaches this good news, it doesn't work out quite as well as it did in the other towns. So I'd like to make a few notes about announcements. You don't need to write these down, but I just want you to nod because there's some truth here. The person making the announcement sees them as important. I want you to hear that. The person making the announcement, whether it's the principal over the microphone or the deacon at church or somebody sending out a memo at work, they believe that the announcement is important. So this is important to us because both Isaiah and Jesus said, this is an announcement. The second thing you need to know is that the listener often doesn't think that the announcements apply to them. I'm sure you've, you've heard somebody say this, oh, I, I wasn't really listening, or I didn't read that memo. Right? Well, you make the announcements and they're important to you, but they're not really important to me. So now we have a problem. The announcer thinks they're important, but the listener is ignoring them. So hear this one. The truth is in the announcement, whether you choose to hear it or not. And I don't know about you, but when, when I make an announcement and people don't listen, maybe they come to church the wrong time for a service or they forget a meeting, or I, I don't really have a whole lot of sympathy for them because the announcement was made. So we're going to look at three of the announcements Jesus made and how they apply to us today. The first one is this. Jesus said, I come to give good news to the poor. Now, some of us would go right for the obvious, and many churches do. We need to help the poor, the people that have no money, the homeless. But there's a people that are poor, and you can't see their poverty. Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, the poor in spirit. So yes, poor could be money. Poor could be the person with no family during the holidays. Poor could be the person with no food. 
We can't see in their cupboards or the refrigerator, but that's why churches do food baskets. We can see people who are spiritually hungry. They are starving for the word of God. There are people who need a place to serve. They want to serve, they have talents to serve, but they, they don't know where to go and they, they have a poverty of opportunities. And then of course there are the people with health issues that are poor because they cannot do the things they want to do. So yes, I have a slight concussion from the car accident yesterday and I want to do stuff. I want to do stuff. I want to help clean up the kitchen after dinner. I want to help fold the laundry. I want to drive my car. And Vicky spent the last 24 hours going, no, you can't do that. I, I, I have a poverty of a bill. I want to do stuff, and I'm not allowed to do it. And tomorrow morning, I want to go to school, but the doctor said I'm not allowed to. We, as the body of Christ, are called to follow this mission statement. Isaiah 61 isn't just what Jesus does. It's what the body of Christ, that's the church, needs to do. Reminds me of a story from a really cute book called A Turtle on a Fence Post. It's written by Alan M. Rainey. He tells the story of his father. And they were on a, a train trip back when trains were the way to travel, where you got your own suite in the train. And the porter was carrying their luggage in, and he had a visible limp. And Alan's father said to the porter, do you need to see a podiatrist? And he said, I, I saw the podiatrist. I had an ingrown toenail. He did the surgery, but it got infected. But that was like 10 stops back. There's nothing I can do. And he limped through the entire day. So the next morning, Alan's father invited the porter into their suite on the train. And he said, well, let me have a look. And the porter took off his shoe and his sock. And Alan's father lanced it and cleaned it. And he had some antibiotic cream like we all have in our, our cabinets. And he did the best he could for the porter's foot. And the porter left and Alan was sitting there and the porter was visibly upset. And he sat down next to Alan and Alan said, what's going on? He said, it's your father's fault. He said, what's my father's fault? Does your foot still hurt? He says, no, my foot is fine. It feels wonderful. And he, and he burst into tears sobbing. And Alan said, what, what's my father's fault? And he said, well, while your father was working on my foot, he said, let me catch up here. It's on the next page. He said, while he was dressing my toe, your daddy asked me, if I love the Lord Jesus. And I told him my mother did, but that I did not believe as she did. And then he told me that Jesus loved me and died for me. And as I saw your daddy carefully bandaging my foot, I saw a love that was Jesus' love. And I knew that I could believe it. And we got down on our knees and prayed. And now I know I'm important to Jesus and that he loves me. Jesus calls us to bring the good news to the poor. Kindness can make you cry. We need to show the restorative love of God because the good news 
needs to be shared with the broken. The second promise I want to talk about today is freedom of prisoners in sight to the blind. And again, you could go right for the obvious and say, well, we need a prison ministry or a ministry to the blind. But there are people that are captives of many things. You can be a captive of your work. There's some people who are so wrapped up in being important to their job and getting things done, they work 60, 70, 80 hours a week and their family suffers. That was the foundation of the Promise Keepers movement was the father saying, I need to do less at work and more at home. Believe it or not, your family, you can be captive to your family. You've seen those moms and grandmoms who are so wrapped up in all the things they need to do for the kids that they can't see any of the ministry that would take place out of that. You could be a captive to the holidays. You could be so worried about the lights and the presents and the cookies and the, the ham for Christmas and all the things that you have to do and can do. And let's be honest, this year you can't do. You could be a captive to the holidays. You could be captive to your addictions. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, but you could be addicted to many things. And we were talking about this at school this week. There's a thing in psychology called self-defeating beliefs. They usually begin like this. Unless I, then you fill in the blank, then you finish it with, I'm not a good person. Unless everybody is happy, because it's my job, of course, to make sure everybody's happy, then I'm not a good person. Unless everybody is uh, working well together, because I'm the captain of the team and they have to work well together. Unless everybody is feeling loved. And you could fill in the blank. But what happens when we're under stress is we focus on our self-defeating beliefs. Because we're taught very early in life that if something goes wrong, it's probably our fault. And we need to fix it. So Jesus says to you today, I have come to free you from whatever it is that holds you prisoner. And of course, when we're talking about the blind, there are physical blindness and then there's spiritual blindness. There's some people who cannot see the wonderful things of God because often they're prisoners. That's why I put them together. They're so wrapped up in this that they can't see that. There's some people who can't see the forest for the trees, and there's some people who can't see the trees for the forest. Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus talked about, and that's the year of the Lord's favor. On the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, now I want you to, we have to do a little math here, I'm sorry to say. So in God's perfect kingdom, you worked for six years, and on the seventh year, you didn't work. The farmers didn't plant. And God said, trust me, from all those seeds that have landed, I will grow enough for you to live on, but I don't want you to work. And what we call it today is leaving the field fallow. And we've learned that if you leave a field fallow, it regains the nutrients and it actually is better for the land. Now, they didn't have scientists 2,000 years ago to figure this out, but God knew it. So the first seven years, you work six, leave it fallow. 
Work six, leave it fallow. Work six, leave it. You do that seven times. That gets you to 49. You with me? And on year 50 was the year of Jubilee. So if I had a rough patch and I needed to sell my family land, on the year of Jubilee, I got it back. In fact, there's laws in the Bible about how to figure out how much to sell your land for. Because if I'm selling it in year one, I should get more money than if I'm selling it in year 48. And God planned for that. The land was returned. Debts were forgiven. People who were taken as slaves or or sold as to servants were let free. They were allowed to go home. If you accidentally killed somebody, God had a plan for this. So you accidentally killed somebody and the family of that person wanted to exact justice. There were cities of refuge that you could go and live in and be safe. Like in the old movies when they would call sanctuaries, you would be safe. And at year 50, everything was forgiven and you were allowed to return home. Now, if you were listening to these Isaiah passage, Jesus left out when he read in Luke, the vengeance part. He said, the year of our Lord, the year of our Lord's favor, and he stopped there. But the next sentence says, or the vengeance of the Lord is coming. And we talked about that two weeks ago when we did the announcement for the future. Advent does not just prepare us for the coming of the new baby. It's preparing us for the return of our Lord and Savior. Reminds me of a story of a little boy who built a sailboat. Now, when I was a little boy, I had a remote control boat, one of the first ones, but in the olden times, my dad actually had one. They would build a wooden sailboat, and then they had strings that attached to the sails, and you could sail the toy sailboat on your local lake or or a small river. So this little boy put great care into building the sailboat, and while he was sailing it, the strings broke, and the boat sailed away, And he couldn't find it. Later, he's walking by the toy store, and guess what's in the front of the store on display? His sailboat. And he walks inside and he says to the guy, that's my sailboat, I built it, it's mine. And he said, well, I'm sorry, son, but you know, we just bought that sailboat. You'll have to buy it back. So he went home and he opened his piggy bank and he got all the money He could, and he ran home, and he had exactly one dollar. So when he reached the store, he rushed to the counter, and he said, here's the money for my boat. And when he left the store, he hugged the sailboat. And he said, now you're twice mine. First I made you, then I bought you. That's what Jesus and God are saying to us today. First I made you, but now things are broken. And it's my job as the Heavenly Father, just like the Father's job on Christmas morning, to fix broken things. First I made you, then I bought you. That brings us to two conclusions. The first one is this. If you are broken, Jesus came to heal your hurts, restore you to righteousness, and free you from your faulty choices. He came to love you when you feel loveless and to give you hope when you feel hopeless. If you are in need of a fix from Jesus, 
then make today that you trust him with your heart. And after the last hymn, if you want, our deacons, our pastors would love to pray with you. The second conclusion is this. We are called to be like Jesus. We are called to give good news to the poor, poverty of all kinds. We're called to give freedom to the oppressed and sight to the blind, a helping hand to those in need and a spiritual direction for those that are lost. And we need to look for the year of Jubilee, the year of our Lord's return. Again, if you have a personal need or a challenge or petition, we'd love to pray with you. I'd like to finish with this story. Legend has it that a missionary was lost at sea and was by chance washed out of the sea on the edge of a remote native village. Half dead from exposure and starvation in seawater, he was found by the people of the village and nursed back to full health. Subsequently, he lived among these people for 20 years. During that whole time, he confessed no faith. He uttered no songs, preached no sermons, he neither read nor recited any scripture. He made no personal faith claim. But when people were sick, he attended them, sitting long into the night. And when people were hungry, he gave them food. And when people were lonely, he was a source of company. He taught the ignorant. He was a source of enlightenment to those who were more knowledgeable. He always took the side of those who had been wronged. There was not a single human condition with which he did not identify. After the 20 years had passed, missionaries came from the seat of the village and began talking to the people about Jesus. After hearing of Jesus, the natives insisted that he had lived with them for 20 years. Come, they said, we will introduce you to the man about whom you have been speaking. And the missionaries were led to a hut where they found their long-lost fellow missionary, whom they had thought was dead. Today, for those of you that believe, God is calling you to be that missionary, to be the active hands of the body of Christ. Amen.